And so now we are in Exodus chapter three and Moses is 80 years old and there still has been no relief from this awful slavery. And that's when he's thinking it's a normal day and he sees this bush that's in flames, but it doesn't burn up. And God speaks to him and gives him his identity as the eternally existent one, the I am. I was, I am, and I will be. That's what he revealed to Moses. And he told Moses, you go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And I'll harden his heart and he'll eventually let you go. And I'm going to bring the children of Israel out. So we've got this grand job that he's been called to do. And you know, he protested and his, bro uh, his brother was given to him as a help because of his uh, difficulty speaking. So here we are ready to begin today. And we're in Exodus chapter five, verse one. And he's ready to do what God has told him to do. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and they said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Now, let me remind you, what are we doing this for again? Was it just so that we could brush up on the history of the Jewish people so we could have some Bible background? Or is it because... There are all these analogies to today. And when we read in the past, we're really reading about what God is still doing today. Let my people go. Oh, you mean they were enslaved? Oh, and people are still enslaved today to sin. And they're desperately crying out to God for relief. And he has to make a way for them. And Pharaoh says, well, you can forget that. No way. And because you bothered to ask, I'm going to make it harder on the slaves. Yeah, they've still got to spend all day making brick, but we're not going to supply the straw that goes with the clay. Now it's going to be extra difficult. And so that didn't go over too well with the people. They had listened to Moses when he came out of the wilderness and he says, watch these signs that the Lord has allowed me to do. Watch when I throw my shepherd's staff on the ground, it becomes a snake. And then when I pick it back up again, it's a regular shepherd's staff. They all went, wow, okay, we trust you. But when he comes back and he says, oh no, bad news. And then when the slave drivers are screaming at them and telling them they have to produce the same number of bricks, but first they have to go around and scrounge around for straw, then they lose heart and they're not too crazy about this whole plan of being delivered and set free. So we come today to the focus of uh, today's uh, lesson, and that is the 10 plagues that follow. So God is really ready to bring these people out of their terrible bondage. And I'm sure you've heard before uh, these awful uh, plagues that were sent. Uh, by the way, here's what Moses actually said to God. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. And you haven't delivered your people at all. I thought you said you were going to save them. And I did what you said, and it didn't work. And so God said to Moses, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. 
when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So what we're looking at today is a picture of judgment on sin and deliverance of crying slaves to sin who are people of faith. So we're going to look at these 10 plagues and remember that 10 has a very important significance in scripture. Did you know that there were 10 God says in the creation story? And you know there are 10 commandments. And you know that the Passover was given on the 10th day of the month. And you know that the tithe was instituted. And that's 10% of your income. All kinds of 10s in scripture. So 10 speaks of completion or totality. So here we see God's complete judgment on sin and his complete deliverance of his people from the clutches of sin. So let's begin with the first of the plagues. Here's your whole list. I guess we really don't need to dwell on this one. Everything from the water turning to blood to the death of the firstborn. But let's go to number one, the water to blood. Now we're in Exodus chapter 7, and the people are groaning and crying and angry with Moses and trying to survive each day. And every time a baby boy is born, his life is in danger. He's supposed to be thrown into the Nile. And you wake up after five hours of sleep to another back-breaking day of utter exhaustion and getting screamed at and beaten when you can't make the quota. And so... God says, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, this is Moses talking on behalf of God to Pharaoh, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will sink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank so that the Egyptians couldn't drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. I can't think of too many things much more repulsive than turning on the tap in my kitchen to get a drink of water. And you look in the cup, and it's blood. It's not just red water that reminds you of blood. It's really blood. And you go over to your fish tank, and it's turned to blood. And you turn on your spigot and your shower, and it's blood. And everywhere you look, it's blood. I wonder what that could mean. Blood outside of a living, breathing organism kind of reminds us of death, doesn't it? And didn't God say in Ezekiel, the soul who sins shall die, and didn't Paul say to the Romans, for the wages of sin is death. So the number one message from these plagues to the people who had hardened themselves against God's plan was that sin brings death. Sin brings death. Now, in case you like to read about these plagues, you may have heard before that there are some interpretations that go through and say, you know, there is an Egyptian god to match each one of these particular plagues. And the point of the story was to tell the Egyptians, 
all 10 times that a plague came that this particular God that they worshiped was not God. There's some validity to that perhaps, and I will show you one of those, but it's a little iffy on some of the others. And so we're just gonna look at what these judgments have to say about sin to the people who are refusing to do what God is saying to do. So the first thing, sin brings death. All right, so everybody's affected, including the children of Israel, and they're scrounging around beside the water of the Nile, and they're trying to find places where if you dig deep enough, uh, the fluid comes up and you look at it, and oh, thank God, it's water this time. And at least we have something to drink, and oh, all the fish died in the river because it was blood and the stink, oh, it was horrible. And so, okay, we're getting the idea, sin brings death. Now, plague number two, frogs. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. You know, it was real interesting. The magicians that served Pharaoh were spiritual people who were in tune with demonic spirits and actually had power. And it was strange because they couldn't stop the frogs and they couldn't erect barriers to keep those frogs from coming into the abodes of the Pharaoh and all the other people. But it turned out that they could also do this horrible miracle. The Egyptian magicians with their demonic powers were also able to bring forth frogs. What could this mean? Kind of reminds me that Satan doesn't stop evil, but he can certainly also multiply wickedness, can he not? And I wanted to show you also that the people of that day did have a frog goddess. Her name was Heket. And she was supposed to be a goddess of fertility. And the way this all worked in their minds is that when the floods came, the yearly floods of the Nile, and the Nile would go over its banks, and that's not a place where it rains a lot all year. And so you're real dependent on the water from the river because you're not going to be getting it much from the sky, you know. Well, when it would flood, then also the frogs would come just naturally. And so they made their goddess of fertility in the form of a frog. And I thought you'd be interested in this picture. If you went to Cleveland, Ohio, and you went to the museum there, you could see this Egyptian alabaster form of a frog. Did you know that thing is 5,000 years old? It's right here in America, Cleveland, Ohio. And it's, it's uh, dated at 3000 BC. But the reason they made an image of it is because they worshiped the frog goddess. And now everywhere they look, there's just frogs. There's frogs in your house, frogs in your bed, frogs in your closet, frogs in your living room, frogs where you were gonna sit down, frogs where you were gonna step. Oh my goodness, and it's so awful. What else does the Bible have to say about frogs? What could this mean? Well, we go to the last book in the Bible where we're seeing God's judgments poured out in Revelation. The only time in the whole New Testament that frogs are mentioned, and it says, John says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, 
and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, you know, the unholy trinity, the dragon is Satan and the beast is the antichrist and the false prophet is the one who helps and serves him. Three unclean spirits like frogs. Someone illustrated that. Isn't that remarkable? Three unclean spirits. And so, in retrospect, we can see that the message is not just that the frog goddess is not God, but it is that sin brings uncleanness. So message number one from the water turning to blood was that sin brings death. Now we see that sin brings uncleanness. Maybe you'll be interested in this image that was done in 1670 and wound up illustrating a French Bible. Can you see the frogs all over the floor there? Everywhere they look, these awful frogs. And so Pharaoh changes his mind, you know, like he does every time. And he says, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Just make the frogs go away. And Moses speaks the word and the frogs dry up and die and go away. And people are shoveling them into big heaps to get rid of them, to burn them. And then Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let you go. You may not leave. You may not go out into the wilderness to do your sacrifices like you have requested. You can't go. And here comes another plague. So plague number three now is lice or gnats. And we're in Exodus chapter eight. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and he struck the dust. Hmm. This time he's striking the ground with the rod and there were gnats on man and beast. Imagine your skin crawling with gnats or lice. Now they really don't bite so bad. So it's not like you're in horrible pain, but you're just crawling with this disgusting vermin. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Did you know that the Egyptian priests were so clean back then and so worried about their hygiene that they would shave their heads and their bodies every three days because they wanted to be absolutely certain that when they went about their demonic rituals of worship that they didn't have any vermin on them. And now they're just crawling with it. And it turns out that when the magicians with their demonic powers also tried to do this particular awful miracle, you know, they were able to bring forth frogs because Satan can proliferate wickedness and uncleanness. But when they tried striking the ground and bringing forth gnats, they couldn't do it. And it's also very interesting that when you go back to Genesis 3, and you look at the curse that was placed on the earth because of sin, that God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. When the priests realized that they couldn't replicate this miracle, they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. He didn't pay attention, but we see that Satan can inflict death with God's permission, and he can inflict uncleanness and multiply it. But with the curse, he is not allowed to tamper. He must abide within the confines of what God has ordained. And so we see that sin 
brings a curse. Message number three. So message number one was that sin brings death. Message number two was that sin brings uncleanness. And message number three was that sin brings a curse. Okay, so Darrow said, all right, all right, all right, so you can go. Just make the gnats go away. And Moses did, and he changed his mind and wouldn't let him go. And so plague number four quickly followed. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by swarms of flies. And here we see a hard break between the three previous um, curses and this one, because it specifically says in verses 21 and 22 of Exodus 8 that the Israelites did not suffer from this particular place. They were not swarmed with flies. Now, flies, they're a little different than lice. Lice are annoying, and they crawl on you, and they're disgusting, and they remind us of a curse, but they don't bite and devour. But flies, flies bite, flies hurt, flies cause torment. Reminds me of what it says in Revelation 14, 11, about those that would be forever punished because they would not come to God. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. So our message then is that sin brings torment. We're getting quite the education here about the nature of sin by going through these plagues. First, water to blood, sin brings death. And then frogs, sin brings uncleanness. And then lice or gnats, sin brings a curse because it came from the ground. And then biting, devouring flies, sin brings torment. And so Moses once again called off the plague because Pharaoh promised, I'll let you go, I'll let you go. Okay, I'm sorry, just please make it stop. And then he changed his mind and then we're back. And plague number five. There was now disease on all their livestock, Exodus 9. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. Wow, we're not just talking a few cattle here. There's a whole laundry list there. Horses, donkeys, camels, oxen, sheep. Well, what did they use those animals for back then? For work and for transportation and for farming. They were symbols of productivity. And they go out and they look and it's all just dead and gone. What are you gonna do? Kind of reminds me of what it says in Proverbs 21.4, a haughty look, a proud heart. Well, that was certainly Pharaoh. But then that third phrase, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. In other words, sin thwarts effort. You try and try and try and you work and work and work and then you go out there and it's just all dead. Oh, I did so much work and for what good was it? So sin thwarts effort. So let's see, where are we now? First, it was sin brings death and then it was sin brings uncleanness and then it was sin brings a curse and then it was sin brings torment and then it was sin thwarts effort. 
Same song, sixth verse now. Pharaoh says, okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, just make it stop. And he made it stop. And then he says, nope, change my mind, I'm not letting you go. And so we get to Exodus 9, and now we have plague number six, boils. Oh, goodness. Sickness now. You know what a boil is. It's actually a localized skin infection. And those are so sore. Goodness gracious. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Moses and Moses, before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air. This kiln was actually probably the furnace where they offered human sacrifices because they were steeped in wickedness there. And so Moses throws some of that ash in the, in the air and it becomes boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And if you're thinking maybe that the message is that sin brings disease, you'd probably be right on. Now, that doesn't mean that every person that gets sick sinned. We know that sin in general is on the earth and it affects us all. But we also have to be careful that we don't skip over some of the things in the Old Testament that show us that God judges sin. It's real easy to get so... Uh, about uh, out of balance that all we ever talk about is God's grace. But when you look at Deuteronomy 28, 15, and then you go on down to verses 21 and 22, he's talking about there are consequences to sin. And this is what he said to his own people. If you won't obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And you're reading on down the list and you come to verse 21 and he says, the Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you're entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, fever, inflammation, fiery heat, drought, blight, mildew. They will pursue you until you perish. And so we see that one of the consequences of the sin of mankind is that we all get afflicted with diseases, things that make us sick and sad. Sin brings disease. I remember when righteous Job was afflicted with boils. And, you know, Job, his book comes later than this in the Bible, but he lived prior to this time. He probably lived about in the time of Abraham. And he was a man who feared God and stayed away from evil. <clears throat> and because of the sin that was in the world, Satan was allowed to afflict him with boils. You remember the picture of him sitting and scraping those boils? Oh, my goodness. He was so sore. I can imagine that it would be hard to even lie back because whatever part of you touched the mattress or the ground or the mat or whatever you were lying on probably had a boil on it someplace. And oh, that hurts. So sin brings disease. Then we come to plague number seven because Pharaoh had said, okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If you'll just take it away, I'll let you go. And so Moses took it away and he didn't let him go. And then came hail. And then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail. And fire ran down to the earth. So can you see this tremendous thunderstorm? The clouds are getting 
thicker and thicker and blacker and lower, and you know that a storm is coming, and all of a sudden, here are the winds. And then there are these terrific strikes of lightning, and it sets something on fire. And then there's some dry brush, and that catches on fire, and there's just fire everywhere you look. And the hailstones, well, they had warning for this. Moses told Pharaoh it was coming. He even said, if you go back and look, you better tell your people to get all the surviving livestock and put them in barns, because if you don't, they're going to be killed by the hail that's coming. And some of the people actually did believe and put their livestock in. But some of them just said, not going to do it. And they left their servants and their animals out in this. And there was a great loss of life. You read, the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Well, not all of their crops were up yet because it wasn't the time of year when absolutely everything had, had uh, sprouted. But everything that was already up was just trampled by that horrible hail. You know, it's interesting. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. I've heard a lot of pastors say over the years, God's not mad at you. And I would always wonder, how do we balance the places in scripture where it does say that he gets mad at sin? He may not be angry with us in particular, but don't you be deceived. He does feel emotion according to the scriptures, and he does get angry with sin, and he does have a point at which he says, that's enough. I mean, we look in Revelation 8-7, the first angel, the angel of judgment. Well, before that one, let's look at what Paul said in Romans, the wrath of God. Here we are, New Testament. This is the book about God's grace with all the salvation scriptures that you memorized for the Roman road. And that same book, that same author says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then you go to that book of Revelation and you see God's anger poured out in hail and fire again, just like it was at the beginning of the law. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown on the earth. What? Go on in Revelation to chapter 16 and it says great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each fell from heaven on people. You know, the unrepentant people who were shaking their fists at the sky and saying, no, I don't want you. I'm going to persist in my disbelief and my sin. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Okay, so what was the point of this? What message were you trying to give us, God? Well, message number seven with the hail is that sin brings wrath. Look at that 
magnificent painting as Moses presides over that terrible storm that's coming and the flashes of lightning that bring the fire and the hailstones that cause so much damage. Okay, so how far have we come so far? Let's see, we started out, sin brings death, and then it was sin brings uncleanness, and then it was sin brings a curse, and then sin brings torment, and sin thwarts effort, and sin brings disease, and then sin brings wrath. <laughs> Same thing happened again. Pharaoh said to Moses, call it off. Moses called it off. Pharaoh said, nope, still not going to let you go. And now it's time for plague number eight. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land that day and all that night. <clears throat> when it was morning, the east wind had brought locusts. Locusts came up all over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. Oh, locusts covered the face of the land. Land was darkened. They ate everything. Nothing green remained throughout all the land of Egypt. Did you know there's a similar prophecy about the judgment of God in the book of Joel? Right over there close to the prophecies about how the spirit would come in the last days. And there's this whole part in chapter 2. I hope you'll go back and read it. It's the first 11 verses of Joel 2. And it's talking about this army. This army of God that comes to bring judgment. And guess what the army is? It's locusts. How strange, God's army was locusts and you get to the end of this passage about God's judgment being poured out and it says the Lord thunders at the head of his army. Well, if you weren't in context, you might be picturing angels behind him or saints. It's locusts. His forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. And what was the take home message from all of that, Joel? The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? So sin brings God's army of judgment. And then plague number nine, you know the story. Moses wouldn't let him go. And so here comes another plague. And this time it's darkness. Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. And there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They didn't see one another nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. What do you think that message would be? How about sin brings darkness? You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You read about that darkness when you have time and goes into detail and says that the people couldn't see their hands in front of their face. People didn't even leave their homes. It was a penetrating darkness. And yet there was light over in the land of Goshen where the people of God were. All right. So finally the darkness is lifted and Pharaoh still won't let the people go. And here comes plague number 10, which gives us the ultimate message and this time, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, 
to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Death. Oh, and it's your kid. It's your grandson. Oh, oh, death. You know, but this time, it's not the kind of death where you see blood and you think of death in general. It's this one beloved one has died. Reminds me of what Isaiah 59, 2 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So as the people were separated from their loved one because of sin, so sin makes a separation between us and our Father. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he doesn't hear. Message 10, sin brings separation. But as you know, and, and there they are discovering uh, the firstborn that had died in home after home after room after room. <laughs> then you know that God's people actually were able to escape this because they were told ahead of time, if you will take the blood of a year-old perfect lamb and slit its throat and pour the blood in the basin and take some hyssop and paint the doorposts around your door and roast the meat and don't break its bones and eat it with bitter herbs and stay inside your house. Then at midnight, when the angel comes by to strike the firstborn in the house, when he sees the blood, he'll pass over. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he'll see the blood on the top and the sides of the door frame, and he'll pass over that doorway, and he won't permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Do you see the blood on the doorpost there? The angel is looking, and he's putting down the sword, and the family inside is safe. That reminds me that even though these 10 plagues show us the totality of the judgment of God on sin, for all who are people of faith, there is this marvelous grace. And that is borne out by the famous salvation scripture, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's how we're saved in the New Testament. That's how they were saved back then. God's grace, and they looked forward to the blood of Christ instead of back to it as we do, and their faith. They believed that what Moses had told them was true, this word of the Lord, and they demonstrated their faith by painting the blood on the doorpost, and then God's grace allowed that angel to pass them by. So yes, we have to be careful in our sinful world today that we don't forget that God really does judge sin and it's really not okay to keep going on and on further and deeper into this morass of stuff that we know good and well is contrary to the word of God. But on the other hand, for all of us who love him and who are called by his name, we can put our faith in him and his grace will be enough for us. Bottom line, God will surely and completely judge sin, but grace is available for people. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please pass it along. 